um, what people don't realize that pursuing the CA designation is a lot of work. I think that you have to understand and acknowledge that um, you're going to have some sacrifices. You're going to work really hard. Um, it's not glitz and glam, like we said. It's not glamorous, um, but it's a lot of learning. And if you actually immerse yourself, or like you put yourself in the position to learn the most as that you can, and understand as much as you can, it is really a rewarding um, career or really a rewarding designation to pursue. Afshin, everyone. Welcome to The Economites, where we have candid conversations on critical issues. My name is Nikom Giba, and today's candid conversation is a special one. Not only because I'll be speaking to one of South Africa's young and rising investment banking stars, but also a personal friend of mine. She's a chartered accountant and obtained her academic qualification at the University of Cape Town. Today I'll be speaking to Khaledumi Rambedi about companies and a purpose. Do enjoy. So, Khali, how are you? Yes, I'm good, <laughs> thanks. And how are you doing? <laughs> I am good. I'm actually very excited to have this candid conversation with you. I know just at the top thanks of my head, me. just at the top of my head, Khali, um, we've spoken to a central banker, but we've never spoken to an investment banker. So you're yeah. the first one. And oh my gosh, thank you. And I'm like junior, so you have to speak to the big guys. So always <laughs> happy to chip. Always happy to chip in. No, fantastic, fantastic. So if you look, or rather if you buy the Deal Makers magazine, it's basically a magazine mm-hmm. for corporate finance and the latest issue, if you turn to page, is it 68? Yeah, page 68. You yeah. will see a title there which says, Changing corporate purpose is set to transform M&A decision-making in South Africa. That is what you're going to see if you turn to page 68. And then if you carry on going down, you will see a picture of my guest, Khaledumi. here. (laughs) (laughs) She's the one that actually wrote I read it. I read the whole thing, and I read it again. And it was so interesting. Thanks for that. It It was beautifully written. It was punchy and it was straight to the point and it was very fascinating. In fact, it was so fascinating that I spoke to my team that we have to get in touch with you to speak about what oh, you thank wrote, you. <laughs> about, the, yeah. about the corporate purpose. I think this is jump straight into it and then we're going to deal with some other issues, but I'd like to jump into this thing about companies and purpose. Okay. Yes. I Googled the, the definition of purpose and it says that the reason for the existence of something purpose of it and you spoke about the changing corporate purpose now change suggests to me that there's an old way versus the versus a new way can you just speak a little bit about the changing corporate purpose what is the changing corporate purpose well i think if you look at it um historically you'd know that most people well initially just started businesses to make some sort of a return or to maximize profits that's been the main focus uh though it still remains quite a big focus today. Um, What I mean, or what we meant by a changing uh, focus, we're kind of talking about a a change in the purpose of a company and who exactly it should impact and who it should assist and help out. Um, So initially it was just shareholders, you invest money, you get a return. Now you're looking at building businesses that are good for society 
that are going to impact not only shareholders, but all the stakeholders involved. And that's why you'll see we make reference to a stakeholder inclusive approach versus a shareholder approach. And that has a lot to do with how companies now have had to stop looking at just what's good for the shareholder and concentrate on what is good for all stakeholders and shareholders are part of stakeholders. So pretty much what we're saying is that we're seeing companies starting to play a vital role in society and impacting society and not just leaving that just to our government, especially from a private sector sense. So that's kind of what we're looking at when we talk about that. But then, but then if you had to ask someone, someone on the street, someone who knows about these things, they'll say that the shareholders are, quote, the, the owners of the business. They, pro- they provide the financing, they provide the equity financing. Surely they're the most important players and surely the purpose should be centered around those shareholders, no? I think that if you're looking at it from that perspective, you're kind of understanding that it's, it's very much linked, right? So we're talking about longevity and, sex, sex, sorry, longevity and also what do you call it? Sorry, the word always eludes Sustainability. Me, but and sustainability, thank you. Mm. So you're looking at sustainability of businesses and you're saying that, okay, if you are a shareholder, you want some sort of return, mm. but your company won't survive if it's only focused on, based on wrong fundamentals, of if the operations, if the purpose, if everything is based on is fundamentally wrong, right? Mm. So yes, they are important, but what we're saying is that you don't only have to benefit just um, the shareholders, but if you benefit everyone else, it's likely to ensure that your company is is long-term and sustainable in the long-term, if that makes sense. So they still remain a very key, vital, important role, and they will still get their return. However, it's shown that if one part of it is not working, so if all the other stakeholders aren't impressed, they're not really happy, your employees aren't happy, um, you can think about it like if we keep it from a simple, simple thing. If you run a retail service and all mm-hmm. the tellers are upset, right, and you get there and the customer doesn't enjoy themselves because they weren't held well, right, that's just value destructive or business destructive. Therefore, you're going to lose employees because they hate working there or not happy. And then you've got customers who will never come there because of the poor service, right? And if you think about it from a community perspective, those companies typically employ within their communities or in the surrounding areas. And yeah. if a company is not able to become sustainable and long-term, pretty much it's going to close down, right? Which leads to unemployment. So what we're trying to say is that if you are able to manage all the other stakeholders and ensure that they are happy or you are taking care of them, then you're able to effectively bring a return to shareholders. In no way are we saying that you are you have to forget about the shareholders we're not saying that we're saying hey shareholders if you guys think short term sure you can run you can run your staff very hard you can pretty much exploit everything and make your money as quick as possible but if you're looking at something that's long term and it's just bigger than yourselves then you've got to also consider and ensure that everyone else that's involved in the value chain is positively impacted by you and the business if that makes sense yeah no, no, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. And also in the article, you mentioned something about a social contract. Now, what did you actually mean by a social contract? Do companies have a contract with society? What, what, does, a social, what does a social contract actually mean in the context of our conversation right now? Yeah, so I think if you look at it, it's not anything that's, it's kind of an implied contract. It's not actually a physical contract. We yeah. all go down and sign a society saying that <laughs> business <laughs> is saying that the businesses have a responsibility. It's kind of like um, when someone's an, an, taking an, has an undertaking to kind of benefit society with what they do within the business. So it's kind of ensuring that 
um, operations, the business are likely to be for the benefit of society and not just certain individuals. And that's what we mean by more of a social contract, meaning all the decision-making, how you're structuring things. So if you can think about maybe from a mining perspective, yeah. you understand that if you have a mine, you're going to mine, you're going to pretty much, you have to come back and you have to kind of rehabilitate that space when you're done. And it's kind of like a socially implied, yes, it is expected if we go technically, but it's also just a socially beneficial thing for you to be able to repair the land so that it's able to be functional for our future use or for future society. So that's type of kind of, every, in all decision-making, you've got to think about that. What's for the benefit of society and how does it damage society? How does it benefit society? So that's what I mean. So you're saying that basically yeah. there is a meeting point. There is a meeting point between the maximization of shareholder value versus uh, the goodwill of society. And you also mentioned something. About, yeah, and you also mentioned something about how those two need to link for the sustainability of the actual corporate. Yes, yes. I think that um, if you look at it, it's been a, a quite a trend that like f- fascinates me. Um, I don't know if you've heard about impact investing, but you'll see that it's yeah. be, it's become such a big space um, um, worldwide where people, where shareholders are starting to ask exactly no. So normally they'll just put their money, whether in pension funds or stuff. But we're looking at really wealthy individuals asking, what is my money doing? What is it actually doing? So over and above the return you're giving me, what are you using my money for? And that's driven a lot around uh, a lot around impact investing. And if you actually look, and I think I've had a chat, as, and yeah. I mean, I'd have to do a lot more research around this, but if you look at it, you'd see that ESG and the focus and impact investing are actually bringing significantly larger returns than what was initially expected. Because if you think about it, if you, it literally just makes makes this whole theory make sense. That if you're looking and you're impacting or you're investing in businesses that are impacting society for the better, you're likely to create a longer-term, sustainable, um, higher returns than if you're just looking short-term, value destructive kind of decision-making. So I do think that definitely that's the case. You mentioned you mentioned an interesting an interesting acronym or abbreviation. I know as the economists, we try to make uh, these, these things simple for everybody to understand. You mentioned ESG. Can you just explain what ESG is? Okay, so it's more like, it's a whole like term for, 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 for things, right? So environmental, social, government. Oh, sorry. Yes, I am right with the government, yeah. right? Governance. Sorry to lose me. I, kind of, I think it's yeah. governance. Governance, sorry, yes, not government, sorry, governance, sorry, it's not the same, yeah. yeah. So we're kind of looking at it from a situation where we're saying that um, all of these variables are very much important in ensuring um, that things are functioning properly, right? Um, you're looking at when you're making decisions, you you look at, like, let's just say, what is this thing that we've recently started doing? Um, we started reporting when you're doing integrated reports, you'll yeah. see that even in integrated reports, companies are looking at how they're impacting in the environmental sense, the social sense, and how they're doing this as governance, right? It's become incredibly important for people to report on those factors because you do understand that how you're impacting the environment is going to impact your operations. It's going to impact how people perceive you. How you're impacting socially is also just another metric for maybe you're not performing as well as you should, but you're actually doing great work in society and you're driving a lot more value. That's not just financial in nature but it's also pretty much like csi and so forth yeah. and then a governance we know that governance has 
become incredibly an incredibly hot topic in South Africa. Um, the importance of governance is it important? Is it necessary? And we can we can we can argue that it is probably one of the most fundamental things. Yeah. If something is not run correctly with the correct ethics, you're likely to see um, a lot of issues. People starting to question. Um, how realistic is this business? Is this true? Is the accounting? We all know it's a lot around accounting for them. Yes, is the accounting time. right? I mean, these people aren't even ethical. So are they actually reporting the right numbers? You start seeing a friendly, then you know that the market is people react very quickly to um, any small thing in the market, whether I don't want to say it's overreacting or not, but that's just the type of thing where we're looking at when ESG has become very important in that sense. No, fantastic. No, I think I think you said it very, yeah. very well. And I think I'd like us to switch gears a little bit and speak about the corporate purpose in the context of investment banking, uh, M&As, that sort of thing, basically your type of work. You spoke about yeah. how, yeah, we, we, we just dealt with how important the corporate purpose is and how it's changing to a more ESG aligned corporate purpose. Can you mm. just take us into your world, the importance of corporate purpose alignment in a potential merge or an acquisition? How important is that? So for example, if company A has this corporate purpose, company B has that corporate purpose. However, if you can see just the numbers, right, without looking at the purpose, you'd say that this merge makes sense. However, there is a misalignment on the actual purpose. Yeah. How do you reconcile the two? I think, I think, um, it's a lot around, it's, it's, a, it's a very big fundamental thing. So when we look at like a merger and acquisition, we're looking, yeah. we're looking at like potential synergies. We kind of group it in the synergy sector okay. of like cultural fit. Um, does this have, do they have clash in culture? We look at um, operations, maybe are they located in different places? We look at management, what's mm-hmm. likely to happen with management? You know, we look at a lot of other factors. But corporate purpose is very important because it's it's kind of linked. Corporate purpose flows directly into your long-term strategy and what you were planning, right? And you can see by a company's strategy um, if they were actually likely to be more successful and also if they're likely to be sustainable in the future. You don't want to go now and buy a company that's yeah. going to flop next year because yeah. then you pretty much are destroying shareholder value, right? Mm-hmm. And if you don't want to buy a company and then you realize next year that there's a lot of skeletons in the in the in the closet, you the know, closet, yeah. um, you don't you don't want to realize that actually you you bought a company that's got bad, bad ethics. You've got you bought a company that's effectively been investigated. So I mean, it's very vital. And actually, if you think about it, these issues that we find these skeletons, culture clashes, management not getting along, these type of potential um, issues are actually significant risks that could actually make the transaction not go forward or not go through. It can clash. You won't clash not you won't just clash on the money or how much you, you're valuing the business for, mm. but you're also likely to clash on certain things of that nature of of do we agree with what we want to do with this business? And sometimes what happens is that you won't the, the, the company you're buying, if you're acquiring mm. them, sure. um, the management might not agree with you with your with the long-term strategy that you have for their business, right? Mm. So they're likely to leave. But that's also quite dangerous because you need to consider, can I manage this company without its existing management because it's become successful today because of them? So I think corporate purpose plays a very important role because it directly links to the strategy, the vision, the mission of the company. And when it's not aligned or it's not aligned to what actual industry practice is, then you're likely to see 
people not wanting to prefer to merge the two companies or for one to acquire the other because it just doesn't complement the business. It's just going to cause more issues upon integration, and that's not what you want. You don't want to have to, like, next year have to either dispose of the business or pretty much write it down to zero, Yeah. you know, um, or just sell it at a discount because you just really need to get rid of this asset. So, yeah, it's, it plays quite an important role. No, 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 I totally understand, and I think it makes sense. I think... Yeah, you're, I think you're. I think you're 100 correct. I mean, the way that I think about it is that if the corporate purpose does not align, the probability of everything else not aligning is quite big. And yeah. as you said, because the synergies are not going to match, there's not going to be any synergies, in fact. And yes. Then that will lead to all of those things that you'd say um, once you actually pull through with the transaction. But I'd like us to speak about investment banking because there's something about investment banking which is just so glamorous. Uh, to us glamorous. outsiders, <laughs> it's so glamorous. <laughs> we see you guys there in your fancy suits, in your fancy cars, <laughs> going to these fancy buildings in these fancy areas in Santon. That, that's where you work, actually. Um, yeah. What do you I don't know if I have the fancy cars and the fancy suits, <laughs> but I think the building exists, so I can give that. So yes. Some fancy things, you see. But like, yeah. actually, like, can you just tell us, investment banking, what is that all about? Because whenever you ask someone about banking, they think about uh, the person behind the teller machine. And, but we're speaking about mergers and acquisitions. So what, in essence, is investment banking? What do you guys actually do? So, I mean, it's a lot of uh, moving parts, but kind of, if I put it in a simple place, we'll say that we help, as investment bankers, we help our clients raise money off the capital markets ah. uh, or through some equity or, or, or lending from the lending side of the bank. Yeah. And then we also have like an advisory section where we kind of um, help, with, which, which is where I am, which is, um, we help clients with mergers and acquisitions. So there are a lot of different things that ha- that actually happen, but we kind of work for the big corporates and assist the big corporates um, from either lending and investing and mergers and ex- acquisition and equity perspective. And that's kind of what we do. Oh, excellent. And then like for your particular area of expertise, it's, it's mergers and acquisitions, right? So you yes, guys come into correct. it on an advisory role? I, yes, we're an advisor. We don't, yeah, we don't have a balance sheet. We we literally are your advisors, and we assist you running the the project. We kind of manage the project. We advise you on how to do X and how to do Y. But yeah, is it from? Is it so? Is it like from the identification of the potential merger, or do clients, do companies come to you and say that we are thinking about buying this company? Help us, or do you approach the clients and say that maybe it's a good idea for you to buy that company? So it's a bit of both, but I think the latter is mostly the case. Most of the case, we sit down, we analyze the market, and we think, hey, this mm-hmm. would make make sense for this one to merge and acquire with this one, and then we prepare a pitch document, right? Uh, yeah. And we prepare a pitch document, we meet with the client, and we say, we think you should buy X because of X, Y, Z, Y, it fits in your in your strategy. You guys are looking to what other vertical integration or you're looking to expand and looking to become a conglomerate or you're sitting on a lot of cash that you're doing nothing with. And this company is coming with a lot of returns. So we kind of most of the time are the ones who come up with the ideas and pitch to the client. But when you have a good relationship with your client, your client can also come to, to us, which happens a lot of the time as well. Yeah. And they say to us, um, I need you to help me buy X. And I need you guys, I'm mandating you guys to be my advisors. Then there's the other leg. A company can also come to us and say, I actually need you to sell this asset for me. Mm. And 
and and and I think that's the part where everyone else prefers. We prefer to be on. It's called buy side and sell side, right? Yeah. So buy side in the sense that we're coming and we're buying um, the asset for a client, right? So and then the sell side is just we're selling the asset. And you can imagine that your preference is always to be on the sell side because you are the only seller of the asset and there are a lot of other bidders, right? Or buyers in this mm. case. But if you are on the buy side, you're competing a lot against a lot of other bidders, oh, wow. which is a lot Makes of sense. work. But likeliness of closing the transaction is not always guaranteed where you've got a higher higher um, likelihood to kind of guarantee closure of a transaction if you're on the sell side. That makes sense. So, so, basically, yeah. so basically, whenever you look at transactions, you're hoping and praying that it's a sell side transaction. I mean, something like that. <laughs> but you are hoping and praying, yes. I think that is the leg that most people would prefer to be on, yeah. So it's a very competitive market. So yeah. it's, it's, it's very big on relationships. Relationship, your seniors have kind of built in the market. But yeah. it's also just based on how, how you develop ideas and if people like what you bring into them and if they kind of get along with you. So it's a lot of other variables that play. But yeah, that's pretty much what we do, what we do from a day to day. And then take us in, take us into the actual team. Let's say the advisory team that goes into the potential deal. Who are the role players? What are the role players there? Who are they? Who leads it? Who does the work? Who does the entertaining of the clients? Can you just take us into that world a bit? Yeah, happy, happy to do that. So I think it depends on the, they're pretty much structured the same with similar names, but there's some differing names. So hmm. you've got your principal who's like, the head, he's kind of responsible for originating business, um, meeting the clients, building relationships with the clients, yeah. not just whining and dining, you know, a lot of other things, but they pretty yeah. much with the, the, the clients yeah. kind of the main point of contact with you between the client. Then you've got um, what we call a VP, vice president or senior associate in our case. So it's either or. And what they effectively do is they kind of manage assist in execution of the project, right? So they're like the senior in charge of the execution of the yeah, project yeah. and above the, what the principal. So the principal will always sign everything off, but the VP or the senior associate has a lot of experience and is likely to help you guide you with either when you're preparing the marketing materials, evaluation, um, they kind of sit with you and kind of like teach you a lot from that perspective. Then you've got an associate and an associate is pretty much like a senior, like an analyst, but like senior yeah. to an analyst. And they typically do a bulk of the work with the analyst, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, an associate is is kind of like an, an analyst with a lot more experience. Yeah. So they kind of guide the, the, the analyst who's a lot junior. So those are what you see, the analyst and the associate typically in charge of the financial model. So on a transaction, if we're looking at what, um, let's say we're looking at a sell side, we're saying, okay, we've got an asset, we're happy. We're going to go from day to day. We know we need to build a financial model because we need to value a company. We need to understand or take to our client what we think this company is worth. Yeah. Sit with the client, disagree, agree You know, on the numbers because they give us the forecast. We can't base it on our assumptions because sure. they have to agree sure. that they'll be able to run the business and achieve those targets, sure. right? And then um, secondly, you know that you have to pitch like marketing materials. So how are you going to market this asset, which is quite information memorandum teasers. So it's a combination of the associate and analyst that typically do that. And after that, you need to manage like the bidders. Everyone wants to do a due diligence, right? Yes. So after you've done all the other processes in terms of accepting or rejecting binding offers and so forth, you kind of put them in a data room. They kind of do the due diligence and you kind of are responsible for managing that. Yes. And you're like the, the you liaise between the liaise, the always liaise or liaise between them and the um, the client, um, mm -hmm. because um, 
you can't, they can't actually, no bidder can directly contact the client. We're like yeah. their wall. So when they ask questions, we kind of sift through the ones we know answers to. If we don't know answers to, we say, hi, client, here are the questions. So we manage the project from beginning to end. When we're happy, due diligence, we get an offer, we're happy, we go to the legal stage, right? The legal stage is a very interesting stage. Um, negotiating, you're negotiating on a lot of terms, right? You're negotiating mm. on the value of the business, how it's going to be paid, yeah. Um, yeah. management, all these other factors that you've agreed in terms of how this business or the sale of this business will go through. So that's typically what we do from a day-to-day basis. But I would think that from a junior perspective, analyst associate, you're a lot more technical. You're more yes. in a technical role. Yes. Um, I've been very lucky in my team to have um, a senior who believes in um, client interaction early on. So I've been lucky to, together with my other fellow associate to kind of go to client meetings, engage with clients, call clients by ourselves. Fantastic. You know, it's it just depends on like your management style as a senior as well. But that's typically what happens. And yeah, so the technical, the senior, the VP is a combination of technical, but also starting to develop the client-focused solutions and the principles just very much predominantly client-focused and to access sure. the client's C-suite across the board. So yeah. No, fantastic. And I think that's the goal. The goal is to get to, is to become the principal. That's the it? goal. No, that's fantastic. the goal. Now, fantastic. Yes. Let's speak yes. about the economy a little bit more. Um, let's speak mm. about the economy. In fact, we're switching gears. COVID-19 happened. Um, how has the lockdown, how has the pandemic, we've seen a massive slowdown of business transactions across the board, fundamental mm. transactions, m mm. we've seen a slowdown. What have you seen from your, from your view? Have you seen many transactions happen despite the lockdown or have you seen a general shutdown? No, we've seen the exact same thing. We've seen yeah. a general shutdown. And I think it, it makes sense because you can imagine who our clients are. Our clients are people who pretty much have, I don't want to say excess cash, but it's either in their strategy to acquire um, a business or they were thinking about, it, but they, they kind of have the cash flow or the yeah. facilities to do this, right? And you're sitting in a situation where most of them are hit by pandemic. It's impacting their operations. Some from a retail space aren't even able to open. So you're looking at them rather focusing on managing the existing businesses, especially if you look from an investment house or investment yes. portfolio, private equity. Yeah. Um, they're looking at focusing on the existing balance sheet and making sure that everything is still okay there. So we've seen a slowdown where we've paused transactions because of that. Mm. Um, because remember, when you're in, a, in, a, in an environment like this, any sale potentially could be... Um, I don't. I want. I want perceived like as a forced sale if it has to go through. Yeah. If that makes sense, and that impacts the valuation of a company. And you know, as a seller, you're not going to sell your business for less than you think it's worth. You always want to sell high, and buy. And you know, as a as a buyer, opportunistic buyer, you want to buy it low. So that's low. where we find ourselves in the clash, right? Where people are like, no, we're not selling because this market is not conducive and we're not likely to get the right price. Also, remember, valuations are run on metrics in the business, right? The, 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 the revenue, the EBITDA, yes. all of this. And COVID has significantly impacted the numbers of businesses. So they're choosing, they're opting to rather wait for COVID impact to f- filter through the business. And then the, if they're looking to put the, the, the asset on the market, they will do that. So that's where we've seen the slow. And a very interesting thing you can imagine is that companies have also become very cash flow strapped. So you can imagine our mm. lending team is probably seeing a lot more activity because people are pulling on the existing facilities to kind I'm of sure. finance the business sure. as it stands. So um, we've seen a slowdown. However, very interesting, but still very, very, still much later than when the lockdown. But when the lockdown starts easing, we've seen companies start becoming a little bit more opportunistic, especially um, more of the private equity funds that are sitting on ex- excess cash flow. So not, not operational companies, but more of like private equity funds, investment hall who have 
funds to kind of um, utilize have come back into the market and say, hey, we're looking for any good assets that potentially need to be sold and people are looking for access cash flow and we've got that, right? So those are the opportunistic opportunistic bunch, but very few, because I think we're still waiting to kind of see the overall impact on of COVID-19 on businesses in total, like impact long-term, right? So yeah, that's where we find ourselves. Um, very interesting space, because now it's given us an opportunity to also pitch a lot and to also sit down and consider what exactly is the case or what can we do. But we've also seen a different type of like kind of transaction that has come into the market most like restructures right people yeah. are restructuring their portfolio they're looking at it and which are key assets which are non-core item non-core assets because you know most people want to get rid of their non-core assets and focus on their core assets, the core assets so yeah. we're also likely to see that the only transactions that are happening now are either they have to happen so when i say have to happen i'm saying from a legislation perspective so if it's a mining company they have to have a bee stake it's not it's not negotiable so the, that will have to happen a be transaction yeah. will have to happen if it's necessary for the company to continue operating for licensing perspective or anything else so sure. those are the co- the companies we will see not pausing they will have to happen and then the other ones are pretty much subject to subject to subject to no fantastic i think you explained it very well you mentioned something very very interesting particularly about the private yeah. equity players how you know during the time of chaos and crises people always cry cry and, 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 and shout and, and scream. But it's actually pretty interesting. You mentioned a very, very cool opportunity. The prices are low, uh, companies are cash-strapped, and private equity companies actually have excess cash, which they have to deploy. It's actually actually very, very interesting. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's very hard. It's quite a balance because, you know, some private equity companies are very much hold pretty much significant stakes. So they they are still ensuring that they're monitoring their current investments, ensuring that there's no sure. issues there. But in the case where some, some, and it's it's not a lot, it's quite a few, and I'd like to caveat that it's quite a few, mm. that do sit on excess cash to yeah. deploy, they are definitely always ready for an opportunity. You can call them up and say, here's a good asset, and they will not turn down a good asset because yeah. you understand the fundamentals of private equity. You kind of want a higher return, and the only way to do that is kind of buy low, sell high. Sell high, yeah. Yes. Oh, now, fantastic. I'd like you to get yeah. your, your quick analysis on the South African economy. SA Inc., man, looking at it as a company. What are the good things that you've seen us do as a country during this pandemic? Are there any good things that you've seen? And also, what are the bad things that, that you've seen? Yeah, I think, I think there are some good things we've seen, especially from um, our government, if I must say so myself. Sure. I think if you look at it from the Reserve Bank type, uh, our monetary policy and our monetary uh, prudence, I mean, I think that the Reserve Bank has been very, very good in this time. Agreed. Um, especially with the dis- around decision-making as to interest rates, either cutting them, keeping them the same, and the rationale behind that. I think they, they kind of saw what COVID's going to do and didn't wait too late to start pretty much using their resources to kind of impact the economy. So that's been very good. Um, I think that at the same time, it, the COVID actually has opened a lot of um, things that we used to, I don't want to say we ignored, but we didn't think are as serious as, pos- as they are. And we're looking at unemployment and we've seen how crazy unemployment has become. I think I was looking at the unemployment stats and how f- I was really fascinated as to how they've categorized it, you know, because you know how they've moved people from not, not economically, I mean, from economically active to non-economically active. So it looks like our employment rate is 
somewhat okay, but like people aren't economically active mm-hmm. and justifying and saying that's COVID. And you're like, I see the point because they can't look for jobs because they, they can't. can't. Yeah. But I think that it's not a realistic thing because those people would still like to work. And therefore, I don't think should be categorized as not, not economically active. So I think from um, kind of a poverty Gini coefficient type of perspective, I think that South Africa is really, 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 inequality is significant in South Africa. Yes. You can see it in how incense and things have continued, but everywhere else, people are struggling, people are hungry. Um, yeah, I think um, if you also look at how from an international perspective, and we all know that international investors are important and um, the rating downgrades or yes. the view of the down, of the company, of the rating agencies on South Africa mm. um, is also something to kind of be aware of. Um, yeah. I think the rating agencies have always been a bit um, like bearish on South Africa, um, not they really have. comfortable, not much of an invest governance I think we've seen governance and ethics issues across the board. It's not a government thing. It's literally private sector, government. Um, we've seen the issues with the tenders. We've seen the issues with irregular accounting in the private sector. So I think SA Inc. has a lot of potential for growth. We acknowledge that there is a lot of potential for growth in this country. I think that um, this year, more than ever, has actually shown us where all the pitfalls are and where we need to focus in order to ensure that this com- this country is able to effectively grow and become kind of a standalone company um, that isn't too dependent on, I mean, IMF as it is, yeah. and, and, and just people not being reliant on our government for, for grants, you know? Sure. I found it fascinating. I think people are doing a lot of research around government and how government is currently structured. Um, they employ, like, you know, government employees... I mean, government is such a big, significant employer. Does that make sense? Is that what's done in other countries? Um, what else can be done instead of that? So I think, listen, I, I, I never speak because I like to see things as they play out. And yeah. I, because I'm not an economist, I can't actually predict based on certain models what's going to happen and what's going to happen. But I think there's some positives that we can pick out from this. And there's a lot of learning that we can take from this moment. And I think that how we react from this pandemic going forward. I mean, I think that it's, it's very well publicized that how we handled COVID-19, though there are a lot of critics around how sure. it might have killed the economy, was quite a solid, solid, um, oh, oh, it was done really well, and we've yeah. got to give the government props for that. Sure. Um, but it has destroyed a lot of value. It has had people debate, was it worth closing to level five? Was this company, this country, can this country afford a standstill? You know, and we've learned that we can't. Yeah, we can't. And we've learned that people, we can't afford to have a standstill. I think we've seen that if there's a standstill, how much of a trickle effect it has and the people who are impacted the most are the people at the bottom, right? Because there's some, you can think about, there's some jobs where you can't work from home. It, mm-hmm. You can't. You need the infrastructure of the company, but no one's coming to the building. So you don't need to be in the building. So you don't need to be employed. It's a very, very, very tricky thing. But I think that also comes to the place where I thought, um, COVID-19 and corporate purpose is important because as a company, if you're just thinking shareholder maximization, you're going to probably get rid of any excess cost that you that you don't need. If you think, actually, these people don't come to work, they don't need to. But if you're a more sh- stakeholder inclusive and you care about your people, you're likely to make a plan to make it make sense, find alternative. If it means getting these people in an alternative way to ensure they're able to work from home, are we going to 
build new type of new models of working? Are we going to skill these people in a different skill so that they still remain employed, but in a different sector of the bank? Because we've realized that um, this is no longer working. This will no longer be a relevant um, sector or relevant team. And that's the type of thing where you're not thinking just about children. I mean, you'd be thinking about people and yeah. society and how you can impact them. No, well so, said. Yeah. No, well said. Well said. I'd like us to speak and drawing to the close of our candid conversation, which I've thoroughly, yeah. thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed. I'd like to speak about Khalid Dumi, the, the person, uh, the lady. Yes. You grew up yes. in Limpopo and yes. you studied in the Western Cape at UCT. And now yes. you work here in Gauteng, deep in the heart of Johannesburg, Santon. So you've moved around, right? You've jumped from province to province. Right. Um, yes. which, has, which has been your best province, uh, best experience? My best province? Oh. Um, listen, I think, I, think, I think that I really enjoyed growing up in Limpopo. I think it's very underrated. I think people don't understand how unique and how enriching it is to grow up in such an environment. Hmm. Um, I think that I learned a lot by not being caught up in a lot of, I find the cities are a lot more busy and, you know, and I found that a lot of who I am is based on what I've seen. I mean, um, when I was younger, my parents have, besides my parents are in the education space, but, um, my parents have actually run a lot of businesses. So that kind of speaks to who I am as an, as a potential entrepreneur. I'm very interested in that space, hopefully to get into that one day. Sure. My parents have run from a tiling business, retail business, a farming business. Now my mom's into farming. So I think that the, the experiences I had growing up there have become very fundamental in kind of modeling the person that I am. Um, from a, I guess, if you want to think about it from a social perspective, I, I, I really did enjoy, I do enjoy Johannesburg, but I also just think it's because you have some form of money now in a weekend. So <laughs> you can kind of enjoy of it. Course. I loved Cape Town from a learning perspective. I think that UCT, the environment, being able to go to the beach is very good for me. So listen, I think that I don't have a favorite. I have a favorite. I have favorites for a reason. I have a reason for every city as to why I enjoyed every city that I've been in. Yeah. Sure. And you studied um, chartered accountancy. You studied accounting. Um, and now you're a chartered accountant, by the way. Congratulations about that. Um, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> what made you decide to pursue the career in chartered accountancy? What made you want to become a CASA? Okay. So I think it was a lot around, again, my entrepreneurial upbringing. And yeah. um, I initially enjoyed accounting in high school, but I was always told you can't do something because you're good at it. Um, but I was always looking for a a career or yes, a career where it would open doors to study something that I know I'm insured will open doors for me, which I can say that the CASA, CASA has allowed for me to do or pursuing the CA designation. It's made you more of a holistic leader, um, understanding the business perspective. I mean, you see the type of subjects you do from economic to accounting to a strategy, to marketing, to statistics. So, I mean, sure. I studied a business science um, at UCT and that, that helped a lot. It helps a lot in, in understanding the fundamentals of a lot of different things because you've had exposure to it. And I wanted to be more of a holistic business leader. And that's why I chose um, to pursue the CA designation. And I think it's paid off. I, I, I don't know. I'm not there yet. I'm not even close to where I want to be. But <laughs> I think it's, it's taught me a few things. I've seen a few things and I've really enjoyed it. Sure. So like now, if let's say a young lady or a young man um, is going to listen to this 
to this podcast, this conversation that we're having, and they're saying, gee whiz, I would like to be where Khaledumi is at the moment. What would you say to them? What would you encourage them and say that, okay, you need to do this, do this, do this, do this. As a young person growing up, let's say, for example, the person is in matric, about to finish matric. What would you say to that young person? Uh, the journey is long. <laughs> <I'm kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think, listen, I think that um, what people don't realize that pursuing the CA designation is a lot of work. I think that you have to understand and acknowledge that um, you're going to have some sacrifices. You're going to work really hard. Okay. Um, it's not glitz and glam, like we said. It's not glamorous, um, but it's a lot of learning. And if you actually immense yourself or like you put yourself in the position to learn the most as that you can and understand as much as you can it is really a rewarding um career or a really rewarding designation to pursue um i think that if you're at the end of matric now i think you're writing exams now so i can't give you advice about exams because <laughs> you're writing them but good, <laughs> good luck. point no great point. um good luck good luck but um i think if you're going into varsity you must understand that Varsity is a really um, character-building place. Hmm. I think you do not have your parents. They're not there to baby anymore. You're going into a space where you are literally learning to be by yourself. It's your first encounter as an adult. Yes, you've had boarding school, but you're still at teachers. But you have your first encounter. And as an adult, you're going to be hit by a lot of temptation, hmm. a lot of peer pressure. You're going to be hit by... There's a, there's a lot of things that you start experiencing when you grow up, right? Yeah. Um, mental health, you have to ensure your mental health. You're going to have your own time. You're going to have to dictate to yourself, and which takes a lot of discipline, what it is that you want to achieve. And it's important to be thoroughly... Um, aware of what you're trying to achieve and understand that what you're trying to achieve will likely result in certain sacrifices. And I think I, I sometimes don't like the word sacrifices because it's like sacrifice, like such a bad connotation, but it's like, there's some things you just have to pause for now yeah, to succeed. And you might likely be able to do them in future because you, you know, mm. so you don't miss an exam. You have to study today instead of watching that series. You can watch that series later. Mm. Series. So oh it's my not God. necessary. My you God. know, series, series is even for everyone. Suits. Series was escape. Yeah. My God. Yeah. Yes. So avoid escapism. Avoid it because Vasti will get you with escapism. Mm. If you're struggling, always ask for help. I think that if you're going to sit down and not ask for help, um, you're going to waste a lot of time and you're going to really hurt yourself because it's, it does a lot, of, a lot to your psyche. So ask for help and you'd be surprised how many people are willing to help you. Um, and I think lastly, I think just believe in yourself, believe in yourself, because trust me, not every test is going to come out like, woo, 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 woo. I mean, we've seen <laughs> yeah. marks that our age, right? At that point in time. And I think I was 20. Oh so you can even imagine, <laughs> you can imagine. Um, but yeah, I think I wish you all the best, but I think discipline, hard work, dedication, and always remembering why you're there is what will carry you through those few years that you need to kind of give up a lot. But I think that never stop learning at any point in time, even post you qualifying as a CA, never stop learning because once you stop learning, then you kind of, I don't want to say you're no longer relevant, but you kind of become irrelevant in the bigger scheme of things. But it's also just good for you to kind of be confident and comfortable because you continue to upskill yourself. So upskill yourself, not just in the books, um, find other things, find other traits that you enjoy. I mean, look at Nico, who's like, an accountant who has a podcast, do follow your passions because I promise you a balance is so important. It's not just, you cannot let academics or your marks 
just define who you are as a person. Yeah. Um, so you need to also find other things that you're really passionate about and that you think will give you the energy because that's where you find motivation when you're literally down, when you don't understand why you're there anymore. Those are the things that are going to pick you up. So yeah, I think that's that's what I can give people. I mean, I think you can also give them good advice. Ah, fantastic. I don't know if I'm speaking yeah. to an investment banker or a motivational speaker, but you I try, you know. <laughs> yeah, you really, really that was that was nicely said, and I feel like I was so uh, motivated. You know, it's it's a funny thing, Kale. The thing that we was that we studied. It's very easy for it to define us, um, but I like what you said when you said that keep on learning, trying new things. And I think that's fantastic advice for anybody at any age, not just young people. So, yeah. Khaled, like, let's finish this off. I always finish it off right. with a lightning round. Now, lightning, yes. the word lightning means quick, right? Yeah. It is a connotation of quickness and speed. So, right. you have to answer quickly. Cape Town, Johannesburg, Polo Kwane. But wait, wait, not done. Okay. But if you choose this any city or between the three options, you have to live there forever. Cape Town, Johannesburg, Wait, Johann- Cape Town. Cape Town. Um, yeah. Dinner with three people, dead or alive. Who are those three people? Uh, dead or alive um, mm-hmm. from a social perspective. <laughs> Sorry, I'm the type of person who has to clarify every question. <laughs> um, definitely think Barack Obama and Michelle Obama. So that's two people. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I think Trevor Noah. Trevor Noah. No, that's a yeah. strong list. No, that's a strong list. That's a strong yeah. list. Dream holiday destination. Maldives. I was actually looking at it yesterday. I'm like, I need to go to the Maldives. Maldives. <laughs> Apple or Android? Apple. And dream car? Uh, C-class. Um, what? Okay. So, okay. Let me say this. <laughs> I will get my C-class. So, I shouldn't call it a dream car. So yeah. C-class, I will drive in future. So sure. let's say that um, I like an Aston Martin. Aston Martin. Like, that is an ultimate, an Aston Martin in white. Definitely. Definitely. Thank you, thank you so much, We've had a very, very candid conversation and we really appreciate your time. I'm not going to lie to you, this has been one of my favorite conversations that I've had. And uh, there's just so much I can Thank you, Nico from our engagements on the show and off the show it's always enriching yeah i just want to appreciate your time once again thank you so much nico i hope that i lived up <laughs> thank you for having me and i hope everyone enjoys it it's been good it's been uh probably my first interaction candid conversation ever so um it's been good and i enjoy I like to thank you for allowing me to get out of my shell sometimes because I think sometimes we forget that we can do it. So this is just one of those on my bucket list to do. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, there you have it. This has been another Canon Conversation brought to you by The Economist. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Bye for now.